my elder uncle, Harry Sitting Bear, told me, said the best way to grieve for your mother is to do good things for other people. And I took that immediately to heart and have tried to live up to those words. And I can tell you a year and a half later, he was absolutely right. tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, How It Looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with Charles Hudson. Chuck was raised in partial North Dakota on the Fort Berthold Reservation, his ancestry running deep in the Hidatsa tribe. He began his career as a journalist and filmmaker and soon shifted into devoting himself to advocacy for indigenous peoples, for salmon, and for the environment as a whole. For over two decades, he worked for the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, advocating specifically for the four treaty tribes of the Columbia River Basin, the Warm Springs, Yakima, Umatilla, and Nez Perce. As Director of Intergovernmental Affairs, Chuck served as a liaison with the U.S. Congress, as well as state legislatures and tribal councils. Since his retirement a few years ago, Chuck has become dedicated to philanthropy and to sharing insight into traditional ecological knowledge of his tribal ancestors. Hey, Chuck. It is so good to see you and to have you here for How It Looks From Here. Thanks for joining me in this conversation. Mary, it's great to be with you. We, you know, we go back a long way and we'll probably talk a little bit about that, that journey. But um, thank you so much for reaching out and uh, I'm glad I could be a guest. Well, it's wonderful to get to see you. You know, COVID is so weird and keeps us from, has kept us from seeing each other, all of us. And so that's part of what, as you know, started this podcast. But as we continue, we're focusing on how does the world look to different people in life in the time of climate change? And that's how I would just like to start. As you look out now on the, the headlines that are in... Um, the larger community, but also in Indian country. And you look out on this world and you think of your grandchildren and your three sons. And what do you see? How does the world look to you in this time of climate change and breakdown? If, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with maybe something deeply personal. And it, it has a connection to you. And it, it's this. Uh, so I come from the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation in Western North Dakota. I grew up there, uh, loved to return, see friends, family, though I had not lived there for a number of years. But I got a text message, or a call rather, last night 
from an old friend, classmate, uh, Byron Youngberg, who told me that our mutual friend, Charles Bearstail, had gone missing and that there, his pickup was found abandoned uh, alongside the, the uh, Missouri River. Uh, it's a place where the Missouri River is about a mile across and the water is only a, you know, 40, 42 degrees, but there is some evidence that Charles may have gone out kayaking on the river and uh, his kayak was found or a kayak was found on the far shore. And um, I am just, uh, you know, watching my phone, listening for uh, calls or messages, hoping for the good, for good news that he has been found. And, um, but he's a, a, a young man, or actually Charles is actually a couple of years older than me. I still think of him as a young man when you think of your childhood friends. But he was twins with a, uh, his brother, Patrick, Patrick Bearstail, who lives in Billings. Uh, grew up with those guys and the extended family, Bearstail family. Uh, their mother, Benedictina, always referred to me as her grandson my whole life. But this connects to you, Mary. You may recall roughly 15 years ago, one of those Bear's Tail boys, Williamson Bear's Tail, uh, had um, fallen on hard times. And when I moved to Portland, I encountered him. I found, to my surprise, that Williamson was living in the east side of Portland, homeless, but and, and with still a lot of his dignity, a lot of his humor and integrity fully intact. He, I think he was in that quandary that a lot of tribal people feel that he can't, couldn't go home again and he had to make home the best way he could on the streets of Portland. You'll recall that his sister, older sister passed away and partly fearing what might happen if I made contact with him, uh, I asked you to be a, a go-between between Williamson and I to give him some money, let him know his sister had passed away, and then he might consider going home. This is, Williamson was Charles's older brother, and uh, he did um, eventually pass away a couple of years after that encounter between you and he uh, in a nursing home in Montana. But I wanted to let you know that it, it's hard to speak about any topic without first sharing the things that are on my mind and yeah. the people that I love and, and, and care for. I and my family will be sending thoughts and, and prayers for the Beartail family and for your family. Yeah. And for you, Chuck. That's, that's big. Thanks for telling me. And I do remember that time. Yeah, and I will be going back. I had already planned a trip back to North Dakota uh, about 10 days from now. Uh, I hope I don't have to make that trip sooner, but uh, I will be checking, you know, I will be joining or checking in on Charles, hopefully, and his daughter Shelby, and hopefully they are all reunited and in good health and spirits. So That's a good wish. Yes. Yes. And, and I do know that you and, and your sons, you certainly because you were raised on Fort Berthold, but I know that one of your sons is living there now. Um, and so you were raised in bison country, really. 
And then you spent your adult life advocating for and being very close with salmon. Would you speak about both of those and how they inform what you see about, like we were saying, the environment and climate change and it's um, how we can address it? How can we, how we can restore? I'm reminded of the, the pathway that got me to the west side of the Rockies. I came over to go to college at Washington State University. And during one of the, oh, I think it was Native American week and we had speakers, but uh, one speaker was a filmmaker, a Macaw woman, Sandra Sunrising Osawa, who had produced films, oh, on Jim Pepper, the Native American uh, jazz artist, uh, on the Black Hills issues, on tribal fishing rights, and she opened her talk about salmon and said something to the effect of, in the Midwest, people fight for water. And in the Northwest, we fight for salmon. And that I was initially perplexed. I thought, why would people ever fight over a fish? <laughs> uh, it, it was really an alien concept to me. But my goodness, did I uh, learn quickly, throwing myself into uh, life in the Northwest, uh, befriending uh, other students from all other tribes, you know, the, the Nez Perce, the Warm Springs, the Yakima, and, uh, and, uh, and on and on. And they were all salmon people. And I, I got to learn very quickly why salmon mattered, and then subsequently why they were worth fighting over. The, the, the spiritual beliefs of salmon being ultimately uh, in a previous form, human beings and uh, having offered themselves to jump into the river, make the great journey and come back to their ancestral lands to forever provide nourishment for the people. Uh, I learned all of those things. And then in my years at the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, I learned the science and the, the, the law around it, which were equally fascinating and, and intense. And uh, it was just wonder, wonderful work. But it, yeah, indeed, it, there are certain correlations, you know, of, of salmon and bison in terms of the methodical and intentional uh, effort to eradicate both or to remove those foods from native life as a way of, if not subjugating Indian people, if not eradicating native people. And, and the way that that shows up, well, climate change is a, a symptom, the illness that results from, I would suggest, a colonization of the land. Oh, absolutely. And, and I have been doing a lot of work recently around traditional ecological knowledge. It, it, there is even, I will, I will say that there's even a lack of a agreed upon definition of traditional ecological knowledge. But the way I like to think about it is it exists on a parallel track with traditional science or oftenly called Western science, that they, that they reinforce one another, that they uh, will uh, mutually support each other if handled with care and ha handled properly, that they both reach the same conclusion, but just in, with, through different journeys. 
One of the um, ways that I had that explained to me was by um, Oscar Coagley. He's an, he was an education elder up in Alaska, Yupik. He was a mathematician. And he said, so I learned this stuff, and I started looking around at the culture that had taught me this stuff, and they were things that were called small, medium, or large. But when we make a parka, we measure a person's arms, <laughs> and we measure their body, and we make the parka to fit the person, <laughs> and we do the same thing with a longhouse. How many people? That's how we build it. I, I would love to hear you say more about what you see, especially given the way that you have walked so much in federal and local policymaking, as well as supporting tribes as they communicate with each other. How do you see this traditional ecological knowledge and Western science working together with each other? And does Quigley's uh, description seem fair to you? Uh, Oscar Quigley's teaching that you just related to me reminds me of an elder as first woman who during a very contentious uh, public hearing in Boise, Idaho related to Snake River Dam removal, that is the proposal to remove four dams on the Snake River to uh, help uh, recover endangered salmon. It's been a, uh, it's been a proposal for 25 years now, uh, always contentious. It, it changes in subtle ways over time. And, it, and that debate itself has changed given what we now know about climate effects and climate change, what we will need to do to address it. So it makes an even stronger case that those dams should re be removed if we want to fully realize the health of, of, of the Snake and Columbia Rivers. But this elder Nez Perce woman, when confronted with one of the many obscene, erroneous stereotypes about tribal fishing, that is that tribal people you know, pull all the fish out of the river and leave them in large piles just to rot on the banks. That's a, a, a classic industry uh, derived rhetoric to discredit tribal members who fish. And she got up, a frail, older Nez Perce woman, and rebutted that racist trope with the story of how their family constructs a wooden box every year that is designed to reflect their need for the year. And they take that box to the river, they will fish until that box is full. And when that box is full, they will stop fishing and go home. And it, it represents taking what you need, no more, no less. Thank you. I, I love that. And that was very early in my years at the Intertribal Fish Commission. But again, it was one of those moments that really drove home why this mattered, why the fight had taken on the nature it had. As you're speaking, I'm thinking again of the, the difference here. It's almost as if the two uh, epistemologies come from a different starting place. Like Western science comes from the starting place of separation and observing, of a gaze from some kind of objective look, you know, viewer. 
And then that traditional ecological knowledge starts from engagement, starts from relationship. Does that seem fair? It, I think it seems fair. I, my views on this, uh, they change subtly, you know, as I have grown older and worked in the fields of, of traditional knowledge and science at the, at the uh, nexus of those two uh, systems. And having had many conversations with scientists that, that work for the tribes and in uh, Indian country will have told me that they like working in Indian country. For one, it's the high integrity of the work, the linking of the science that they do to a crystal clear need and vision that is the viability of a resource, the, the human, human uh, interaction and relationship with that resource, and thus human health and well-being and spiritual well-being are all connected. They will say that in, in state and federal agencies or private industry, when employed by scientists, there was typically a political or economic dynamic that directed how science would be done. In other words, what would be measured and what kind of outcomes were preferred uh, over others. And in, in the tribal world, similar science can be done. The questions that scientists are asked to measure uh, vary though, based on a, a, a different need, a different worldview, a different outcome. And it, it goes back to that relationship between the resource, the land, the water, the air, and those human beings. So this sounds like what you're describing sounds like the collaboration between, or at least the openness to traditional ecological knowledge, even as a Western scientist is entering to be of support. But there is this necessity of listening to the traditional relationship. Um, Tell me about an elder you've listened to about this. You told me about the, the woman in Nez Perce. Who else do you think of that you've listened to about this way of knowing that can help us in climate restoration? You know, that, that, that's a good question. I, I th one person who comes to mind is Jay Minthorn, the, the late Jay Minthorn, an, uh, a late elder of the Umatilla tribe who had served on tribal council. He was a, um, you know, a, a long-lived uh, political leader and particularly a strong voice for the traditional foods communities, that is the salmon, the hunting, the root digging, and the berry gathering uh, aspects of Umatilla life and culture. And he had often, you know, here sitting in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, we often think of our food in terms of calories, price, the table on the back of any can or box and that tells you how many grams of sugar, fat, calories, carbohydrates, etc. And Jay was, in his view, these traditional foods were foods. He, he, and end of story. He did not want them referred to as protein or carbohydrates. He did not want to anglicize descriptions of traditional food. It was as far as he would go to use the English language for, you know, 
food or salmon or roots or uh -huh. berries. He actually preferred the Umatilla or Sahaptan language to describe them. But he made it very clear to us that, that we should not refer to salmon in terms of proteins or, or things like that. And as you know, one of the great arguments in favor of salmon restoration or and salmon uh, as a big part of any human being's diet are the omega-3 right. uh, uh, oils and, and, and fatty acids. And the environmental groups working in, in salmon use those arguments. They're good arguments, but again, they just did not translate well to the tribal way of thinking. I, I believe tribal people know that through thousands of years of salmon consumption, uh -huh. that there are enormous health benefits when you have a steady salmon supply and detrimental health effects when you don't. But people like Jane Menthorne just uh, wanted to keep it as pure as we when we talk about traditional food as we possibly can. Thank you. I uh, remember meeting him. And I also remember, of course, a conversation with his brother, Anton, who uh, told me the story of the unlikely return of the salmon to the Umatilla River. And he, the thing, the reason I'm bringing this up is because of my appreciation for Chairman Anton Menthorne. And, and because you, too, have worked in the way that Anton worked to make this happen. He worked for at least 15 years, if not more, to build a relationship with ranchers, with non-native, non-Umatilla folks around in that Pendleton Basin, and built that relationship so that the whole collection of people in conversation felt that it was in their best interest to participate in helping lower the water temperature. Would you say more about what you remember about that story? I do equate Antone with that motto from the Umatilla tribe, which is uh, success through collaboration rather than litigation. The Umatilla tribe have been there for a long, long time and are going to be there for a long, long time. They make that known and clear very quickly and that we are going to be neighbors. The best, uh, best path forward is to see how we can all best get along and define uh, as many mutual benefits as we can to guide our work. The, uh, the Umatilla River now is one of those success stories where it, it had been drained almost dry. Uh, and at times of the year, it was bone dry because of water withdrawals uh, to irrigate fields and orchards and, and uh, other various uses. The Umatilla tribe back, oh, in the 70s began uh, visioning that they wanted salmon back in the Umatilla River. It, it became a primary priority for them. And it, it took years, it took a lot of political support, it took a lot of collaboration and uh, negotiation with landowners, farmers, irrigators, to begin slowly putting water back in that river. And as uh, Catherine Brigham, the current chair 
of the of the Umatilla tribe likes to say, put the water in the river and we'll put the fish back in the river. And, and that was the way they looked at that partnership is that if agriculture can get the water back in the river, the tribes will manage the fish and ensure that the fish are back and will forevermore come back to that river. And oh my gosh, we're nearly 20 years into uh, a flourishing salmon run of steelhead and spring chinook in the Umatilla. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. So yeah, one of the great success stories. Now, also, unfortunately, one of the watersheds most prone to effects of climate change. So in the Columbia Basin and with salmon, it's all about water, both quantity and quality. And with quality, you measure all sorts of things like uh, water toxicity, water temperature, flow volume, uh, and so on. And climate change predictions are showing the overall temperature of the Columbia Basin and its waters to rise somewhere between two and seven degrees over the next 50 years. And most prone are those streams that are in the more low-lying, very arid parts of the basin, like the Yakima River, the Deschutes, the Umatilla, uh, those that get runoff fairly early in the spring and then be and then just warm as the hot summer progresses. Salmon can thrive in temperatures up to about 70 degrees. And then the thermal effects of temperatures over 70 can have effects on their uh, ability to reproduce, or in other words, lay eggs and spawn uh, uh, successfully. The, uh, it, it's a function of temperature and exposure time. For example, a spring Chinook, which is, they're coming up the river right now. Uh, they come in when the water is running quickly, high, and, and they make their way up river and then tend to hold in the lower reaches of the tributaries for many months. They'll swim around at the mouth or near the mouth of the Umatilla River or in pools in the Umatilla River from April, May until September, October. And then they'll start to move up upriver to their spawning grounds. So that's, that's a lot of time to spend in a river that is slowly warming mm -hmm. and can warm up to on a hot summer day can get up to 74, 75, 76 degrees. It, it can be lethal to those fish. So the, the, work, the work that we are focusing on or uh, the, the tribes, the states and the federal agencies are focusing on are what are ways we can manage these rivers, protect them to keep the waters cool. That is hands down the biggest challenge for in the long term of keeping all streams viable for salmon. Yeah, it makes me think that the, the land around the water that has been left most alone or returned back to its essence or essential 
uh, character is going to be able to support the fish the best. I want to switch from fish to people. And I want to read this. Um, I know that you are involved with quite a few mm, foundations and funds. Um, and I know that one of them you have established recently is a fund named for your great-grandmother, Many Dances. Uh, you call it the Many Dances Family Fund. And I want to read this description. Um, you say that this was your great-grandmother, and she was also a revered Hidatsa woman who lived on Fort Berthold Reservation. And you say the fund is focused on values that are important to the ancestors of the Hudson family. And they include democracy in Indian country, land stewardship, education, homelessness, food sovereignty, addiction and recovery, and reestablishment of traditional healthful diets into tribal life. The reason that I read that is because this is the intersection of environmental justice and social justice. And this notion has come to Western activists as, isn't that cool? Yes, environmental justice is social justice. But this is not new to the Hadatsa tradition, for example. And so would you speak to that and what you think of with the Many Dances Family Fund and with your mother's, the Maryland Cross Foundation? Thanks for the question and thank you for finding information on many dances. Yes, many dances was my great grandmother. Uh, she was married to Old Dog, who was the chief and leader of the Hidatsa people, as is often the case in Western encounters with, with tribal people and tribal leaders. There was a focus on males. Uh, so Edward Curtis photographed my great-grandfather, Old Dog, but he didn't photograph his wife many dances. And I, I considered that that's not only a Hidatsa cultural oversight or, uh, or glaring error, <laughs> because the Hidatsa people are matrilineal. We, we take our, our identity, our clanship identity, our wealth, as it were, but meaning our land, our any assets we hold are derived through the female side of our family. And it was partly for that reason that we felt it's time to recognize the matrilineal traditions of the Hidatsa and name the fund after my great-grandmother, Many Dances, of whom many of the, the lands that I now own on the Fort Berthold Reservation began as many dances owned allotments or tracts of land. And they have passed from many dances to my grandfather, Martin Cross, to my mother, Marilyn, and now to me. But you're, you're, you're right. We looked at what were the values that have been passed through our generations to, to me and then that I would like to see passed to my sons. Some of those are listed. There are others as well. I'm glad that you brought up environmental justice because often some of us prefer just the term justice. You know, environmental justice or economic justice are new hybridized forms of the same thing. Justice is justice. And, and when justice is not justice, 
it's it's injustice in whatever form it takes. Yeah. But uh, if it helps people better understand and better activate and better organize, sure, let's talk about it as as environmental justice, social justice, economic justice. I'm I'm in. I'm in on all of those. Yeah. Well, um, I would love for you to kind of close us up here with, uh, I don't know if I would call it advice or just what would you say to our listeners? I know that some of our listeners are in other countries and some are in far away from the Columbia River Basin. And so there is this question like you experienced when you first got to Pullman, you know, fish, really? What's such a big deal about fish? <laughs> you know, and so Columbia River, Snake River, what's that? So, so with that in mind, what is your advice to people? What is your wisdom you would like to leave with listeners as we all keep stepping forward together into this climate disruption? I would encourage people, and I'm borrowing heavily from my mother, uh, to care and care deeply about the community that you live in, to uh, spend time speaking with people, to be generous with your, your ability to listen and hear them. And it's only through that, or it's perhaps best, if not only through that, that you can identify uh, elements of trust, uh, between each other, you can identify the things that are in, important to individuals and families and, and, extend, and, and extended communities. And by doing that, you can identify the things that you want in your community. You can identify the things you don't want in your community. And you become, as you, as you, develop a more unified voice, you become stronger, you become more resilient, and you are less likely to be exploited. You are less likely to have your voice and your story stolen from you or suppressed. And conversely, you have a stronger voice and stronger story to tell the rest of the world. That is uh, something again, I learned from, from my mother, not mainly by watching her, just mm -hmm. by observing that traditional ecological knowledge, right, yeah. is, is observation. I watched my mother uh, become a force for collaboration, for gracious listening, uh, for respect to people who often got very little or no respect in the world and to really build up a community through mutually uh, supporting one another. Well, thank you. It's so wonderful to hear your, your mother's, some of your, the, your stories about your mother. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, you know, my mother passed away of COVID in October of 2020. I miss her dearly. She was such a profound uh, influence on me. I, I am, uh, I'm moving from grieving to healing. And as, as uh, my elder uncle, Harry Sitting Bear, told me, said the best way to grieve for your mother is to do good things for other people. And I took that 
immediately to heart and have tried to live up to those words. And I can tell you a year and a half later, he was absolutely right. Yes. Yes. There you have it. And we're, we'll put some ways for people to connect with uh, these foundations and funds in our, um, in our show notes. Chuck, it is just a delight to get to spend some time with you and to hear how the world looks from where you're sitting these days. Um, thank you for this transition you've made from being a director of intergovernmental relations to being overseeing philanthropy and being a, a caretaker of traditional ecological knowledge. And I am I'm really grateful for the work you're doing with this podcast. Well, I am grateful to and for you, my friend. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca, music by Cedar Mathers Wynn, and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.